Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew chapter 6, with our special emphasis today on really a sacrifice Sunday offering, our retiring the debt and desiring to see the Lord blessed in that way. I thought it would be a good time to talk about the importance of really planning for eternity, the aspect of stewardship and having a biblical mindset on this. There was a father who wanted to do something special for his five-year-old son, little boy Jimmy, and so he asked Jimmy one day, he said, what would you like? If we could do something special, what would you want it to be? And Jimmy, with a big smile, said, I want to go to McDonald's and get some French fries. Well, you know, that's a pretty low bar so dad thought this is great we can do this we'll we'll plan this and so dad and jimmy hopped in the the truck they headed for mcdonald's and 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 jimmy was already beginning to taste the french fries even before they got there his mouth was starting to water and so they got to the counter and and dad placed the order and then to jimmy's delight dad supersized it it wasn't just a small container of fries it was the the extra large and and Jimmy watched as his dad paid for the fries and got him a drink and and then carried those those hot warm golden fries to the table He, he was having a hard time being patient as dad prayed and and thanked the Lord for their food and finally Jimmy started to pick up those warm fries and pop them into his mouth He was having a wonderful time. And and his dad was just enjoying watching his son experience the pleasure of of this this delight of those French fries. And and after a few minutes of watching, dad kind of wanted to be part of this. And so he reached over to take a couple of fries and all of a sudden, Jimmy put his arm up to protect those fries. And dad was kind of shocked. He pulled his hand back. And as he did, he, he reflected on his son's attitude and really the silliness of that. Thought Jimmy's failing to appreciate that his dad was the source of those fries. That his dad had provided the means to get to the fast food place. That he had placed the order. That he had paid for them. That he had given Jimmy more than he expected when he supersized it. And and now Jimmy was claiming that he would guard his fries. And and his dad thought, you know, and if that weren't enough, his dad's a whole lot bigger than Jimmy. Dad could just reach across the table and take those fries from that five-year-old. That little arm is not really going to stop him. Or dad could just go back to the counter and get more if he wanted But as he thought about it, what he really wanted was for Jimmy to invite him in to be part of what was taking place. He thought, you know, a couple of fries isn't going to make that big a difference in that day. But he wanted to be part of that experience. Now, we can chuckle at Jimmy's response, but isn't that often how we respond with God's blessings? 
When we realize that, that God has provided the blessings that we have, that, that he gives us more French fries than we deserve. And, and, and recognizing that, that, but he wants us to then willfully and joyfully give back a portion of what he's given to us. And, and sometimes we struggle with that. When God says, can, you, can I have some of your fries? I'm like, well, no, these are mine. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful blessing for us to be able to give. And as I said, we have a very generous church. And I wanted to direct our attention to biblical stewardship today because I think it can encourage us to keep doing, and, and if there is that struggle, to have the proper mindset. You know, stewardship is a, really an old-fashioned word. It comes from the 15th century, and, and when we hear that, we tend to think immediately of money. And, and obviously, that is part of it. But that's certainly not all of it. Because stewardship refers to managing the affairs for somebody else. It's the idea that we are not the owners, but the managers. And that as Christians, understanding that, that that's an important aspect. As I said, I, we have a generous church. I read recently that uh, when COVID came, that churches saw a 29% decrease in their giving during the time of COVID. I'm so thankful that was not the testimony here. That that was not what we saw here at Tri-City. That you folks continued to give and to give generously. In fact, some people gave their stimulus checks because they said, we don't really need that, but we want to see ministry go forward. And so I, I come to this to encourage us, not because there's a problem, but that we would understand the, the blessing that we, that we receive from God and then the joy that there is in giving. I read in that same study that said that churches saw a 29% decrease in giving. The same study indicated that only 5% of people actually tithe, give 10%. That's of, of churchgoers. And again, I, I, I don't know what people give in our church, but I seriously doubt that's the case. But it's an important lesson that we learn to be generous with the Lord. And my desire is to encourage us and to encourage me in our stewardship, that we would be thinking in a way that we're investing for eternity, that, that stewardship and the sacrifice of, of that is really that we're seeking to honor the Lord. What I want us to see this morning is that those who follow Jesus Christ are called to give priority to that which is eternal. That that's really where we're going to be looking. And the passage I've had you turn to is in Matthew chapter 6 that really brings us to this. Let's read Matthew chapter 6. Follow with me as I begin reading in verse 19. And then we'll look into this passage this morning. Matthew 6 verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness." No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we thank you that you are the giver of every good gift and every act of giving. 
We rejoice in your generosity that you sent your son that we can have eternal life. And we pray that we would be good stewards, trusting you to provide. We thank you for the work that you've raised up here at Tri-City. We pray that we would be found faithful for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. What we see in these verses is that when we are followers of Jesus Christ, there is a priority that we need to give to that which is eternal. And it's important for a number of reasons that faithfulness really does bring joy. There is a, there is a joy in being faithful. And, and it, it really is necessary in a culture that strives to make us dissatisfied with our lives. I mean, there are entire industries of advertising that are out there to make you dissatisfied with what you have. You know, that your life would be better if you had a different car. You would have more friends if you used a different toothpaste or a different deodorant. Now, you may have more friends if you used toothpaste and deodorant. But our culture wants us to think that what we're doing isn't enough or it isn't quite right. In fact, there are entire channels dedicated to selling you things, whether jewelry or vacuum cleaners, and that your life will be better. You don't even have to leave your home. You can do it right from your couch. You can take care of that. The person selling them is your friend. They'll talk with you. You can call in and share your experience. Oh, and by the way, there's a counter to add peer pressure because a thousand people have already bought this. And it's going fast, and if you don't act, you're going to be left out. That's the culture in which we live. It's not to breed us to be content in wherever we are. It's to help us to be dissatisfied. I mean, this is the time of year where you see commercials about surprising yourself, your spouse with the purchase of a luxury vehicle, or maybe two. And just, you know, the smile on his or her face as you walk out and she realizes you've just spent over $100,000 and never said a word about it. Like, you know, folks, that is not a good idea. I do enough premarital counseling and counseling to tell people that two of the big issues that come up in marriage are communication and finances. And spending that kind of money is not a good idea regardless of what the commercial says. You know, they're smiling. It's like, how did that really end? But discontent is the enemy of proper stewardship. And it's really an enemy of true joy. Somebody has said that people spend 50% of their waking hours thinking about money, how to get it, how to spend it, how to save it, how to invest it, how to borrow it, but these areas. And Jesus spoke frequently about money. He spoke quite often about stewardship. In fact, 16 of his 38 parables dealt with how people handle earthly treasure. In fact, it's been said that Jesus spoke more about how we handle money than about heaven and hell combined. And so it is an important area. But what I want us to understand is really stewardship is about what we do with our life. It's not simply about finance. It's about life. And there are some important principles that I, I, I have personally found helpful to just keep in mind. And I kind of want to lay these out for you in, in introduction. If we, we could look at these from Matthew 25, we're not going to go there. But it's the parable of the talents that a man who's going into a far country, he gives his resources to certain servants that they're to use while he's gone. And there are some principles that we learned from that parable there in Matthew 25. It's, the first one is the principle of ownership. 
that God owns everything. The, the man in the parable, in verse 41, he distributes his, his goods. In, in Psalm 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. The world and all those therein. It, it's God owns everything. And so he's able to give the promised land because it was God's to give. It says in Psalm 50, verses 10 and following, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Verse 12 says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. God is telling them, if, if I had a need, I'm not going to come asking you. Because it's all mine. In Haggai 2 verse 8, it says, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And if we think this way, you know, my car belongs to the Lord. My house belongs to the Lord. My children are entrusted to me from the Lord. They're actually His. My, our investments belong to the Lord. Then we see ourselves as a steward rather than the owner. In fact, it, the Bible tells us, do you not know that you are not your own, but you are bought with a price? We're not even ours. And so the, the world's mantra, my body, my choice, is really a lie from Satan. Because as believers, we don't belong to us. We belong to Christ. And, and understanding that, when we think this way, it really helps us in our attitude. It's not, a, it's not a license for irresponsibility. The Bible never condones irresponsibility. But it does help us develop an attitude of trust. That we can cast our burdens, our cares, our anxieties upon the Lord, knowing that He cares for us and, and recognizing that He has a vested interest as the owner. The second one is responsibility, the principle of responsibility, that God entrusts you with what you have. So in, in Matthew 25, He delivers to these various servants differing amounts. To one, He gave five talents. To another, He gave two talents. To one, He gives one talent. And, and recognizing that they had a responsibility then of stewardship. This, this is the pattern we see in Scripture, in, in the very first book of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden. God did not transfer ownership of the garden to Adam, but he placed him in the garden as a steward. That there was a responsibility that was given, that Adam was to cultivate and care for the garden he was not to abuse it. He had an opportunity and a responsibility. And when we understand that what we have, we've been entrusted from God, then we realize we have a responsibility. It's something we need to be teaching our children. They have a responsibility. They have to respect property. That it's, a, it's an issue of respect. And part of that respect is recognizing it belongs to other people. So the value of property is not what I think it's worth. It what, it's what the owner thinks it's worth. And that's a biblical mindset of responsibility. That God wants us with what he's entrusted to us to invest our, our time, our talents, our treasure, uh, how we handle the truth in such a way that it will bring him honor and glory. In fact, we saw that in Ephesians as we've been going through there, that, that God prohibits stealing, which really speaks of the right to private property, but the goal then is that we would work and not just that we get to have enough to get by, but that we can labor so that we can give to others. And so there's the opportunity of sharing to meet needs and helping. 
We're to redeem the time. That's an issue of stewardship. How do I spend my time? We're to buy it back. We buy it back from that which is foolish and frivolous and, of of course, that which would defile. But we want to be good stewards of time. The third principle is that of opportunity, that God expects us to increase what he has given us. So the, the servant in that parable in Matthew 25, one of them that had five talents invested and got five more talents. Another one had two talents invested and got two. The one who had one just buried it and didn't get anything. And, and there was that aspect. God never asks us to do something without giving us the tools to accomplish it. And the goal is not that we accomplish the same amount. Well, I can't do what somebody else is doing. No, the goal is that we would be found faithful with what God has entrusted to us. So we have different abilities, different resources, different finances, but that all of us would be found faithful. And recognizing this, in 1 Corinthians 3.8 it says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That all of us have part in ministry, but not in the same way. And yet we're all one because it's Christ's ministry. And then the the fourth principle is that of reward. That God will call for an accounting of how we live. So when the man returned from his trip, he calls his servants and he settles with them. The accounts, he rewards those who had been faithful and he condemned the one who had been unjust. But it was that calling for what's been forgiven to them that we look forward to that reward, that God gives us gifts so that we can serve him in the body of Christ. And so the goal is equal faithfulness, not equal increase. And these are really key principles that I think if we keep in mind, we see how it plays out then in this passage, the, the key principles that help us in our Christian thinking of what God has entrusted to us. Now the text that we've read is part of the first great sermon in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. It begins back in chapter 5. It begins in chapter 5. It it speaks of the Lord went up into the mountain. He's in the area of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. The, the, The Mount of the Beatitudes is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful location looking out over the 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 water there. And and he's there and he begins teaching And the very first word, in fact, it's the first word in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 5, is the word blessed. Blessed blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's interesting to see that because the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, gave a warning of coming judgment. It was dealing with people who were just going through the motions, but there was no heart behind it. And so the warning at the end of the Old Testament is a warning of judgment. The first message of the New Testament begins with a word of blessing. And it's going to deal with the heart attitude. And I I think that's significant because the, the need that what the Old Testament is showing us is that there was a need that humanity needs salvation. And the message of the first message in the New Testament is given by the Savior. That Jesus Christ has come to provide that salvation. Malachi confronted people who were going through the motions of religiosity, but they had no heart. And and over and over they're being confronted with, with their lack of heart. 
Well, this message deals with heart issues. In chapter 5, it, it, our Lord says, well, you've, you've read that you shall not murder. But then he goes to the heart issue. If you hate, you've committed murder in your heart. You've read you shall not commit adultery, but if you lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, obviously, the consequences are different from killing somebody outwardly and, and hating them, but the heart issue is what our Lord is going for. And it goes on in chapter 5 to talk about you're to love both your neighbor and your enemy, not just love your neighbor. And so in, in Malachi 3, the Lord told Israel, look, you need to be faithful in giving. And it's the one place the Lord says, put me to the test. Try me now in this, in your giving. And, and, and God said, I will open the windows of heaven. And I will pour out the blessings that you won't have room to receive them. You won't be able to eat all the French fries. Because it will be too much. God said, test me in this. I'm trustworthy. But this is where we realize, and this passage that we've read in chapter 6 tells us that there is a struggle. There's a, there's a competition that is going on. The first issue is that of behavior. That we have competing treasures. And it's an important hard issue because we read in this passage, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But it says, do not lay up for yourselves. Don't, don't store up. The, the Greek word there for lay up or store is, is the, the word, and it's really the same verb form and noun form here for treasure. The word is thesarizo. We get our English word thesaurus. That is a, a book or a treasury of words that you can go to say, okay, what's another word for this one? And it gives you the treasury of that. That's, really, that's the word that's used here. It comes from this Greek word. And it's repeated several times in this, and I've put it in there so you can see it's, it's really saying, do not treasure for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but treasure for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The same Greek form of the word is used five times in these verses. And it's telling us there's a competition. The competition is for what's treasure on earth versus what's treasure in heaven. That, that which is on earth is hard to hang on to. And it's described in three ways that tell us how it escapes how we lose it. Things that moths destroy. You know, that clothes can be damaged by insects. They, they eat those little holes in them or by other things that, that rust can destroy. Now, this isn't quite the problem here in Arizona that we, I experienced in Michigan and in Maine with our vehicles. You know, we, we had a, a 1989 Buick Century and we went we got it. It was really a, a great car for us for a number of years, but over time, the rust just started eating out the, the lower parts of it, and I'd, I'd taken it into my mechanic, and he had fixed it, but, but I just wanted to get rid of that car, and the kids just, our kids just loved it. We had another car, but they're like, oh, Dad, we want to keep it, and I said, look, in, in Maine, we had to take it through an inspection every year. I said, if it doesn't pass the inspection, we're getting rid of it. I'm not putting money into this, and it always passed. <laughs> it's like, I don't get this. 
And, and it just kept, and, and, which was great. We taught them to drive on that. It's like, well, if you're going to learn to drive, let's learn on this car. But it just kept passing. And finally, we, we moved it out of state. They were in South Carolina. I said, look, why don't you take the car down with you? You can use it. You need a vehicle. And they didn't have inspections. <laughs> and it's like, you, you can deal. And it finally, it, it finally, you know, with vehicles, there, there's always this competition. You buy them. You're trying to keep them out of the junkyard. They're trying to get in. And they always win at some point. Because rust destroys. But... Was rust really a problem in Jesus' day? I mean, we look at it and, and it, you know, metal things break down, they fall apart. Well, the word actually is referring to things that eat. The word is speaking of eating. It wasn't just that corrosion of metal. It was the destruction of anything that would eat away at something valuable. In an agricultural society, that might be a, a mildew or mold or blight that they've stored the grain and all of a sudden it's starting to get eaten. Or it may be rodents that would come in and eat what was there. There were a number of ways that a, a crop could be destro destroyed in an agricultural situation. And if that weren't enough, you've always got the concern of thieves breaking in and ripping you off. I read recently of a major department store that is losing millions and millions of dollars because of, of thieves. The, the smash and grab, they just run in, they take things and run out, and, and they've lost millions and millions of dollars. Well, that's the culture in which we live. We have to have security systems, we put up cameras, we, we have codes and all sorts of things because it's hard to hang on to. And Jesus is telling the story as he's preaching here, he's saying your treasure on earth and hanging on to it can really be told in three words, moth, rust, and thieves. Because at some point it's hard to hang on to things. And so where are we really laying up our treasure? Where are we looking for satisfaction? We, we've heard, and all of us have heard it, money can't buy happiness. Well, is that really true? Yes and no. Because there is an area, we're created, we're spiritual beings with a material part of us. There's an element where material things do bring a satisfaction. But they can't satisfy the longing of the heart. There, there is an element where money can buy a level of comfort and ease. Someone has put it this way, money can buy a bed but not sleep. Books but not brains. Food but not an appetite. Medicine but not health. Amusement but not happiness. A crucifix but not a savior. Money can provide spiritual or material satisfaction, but it can't truly meet the longing of the soul because we're spiritual beings. And so the point is we have to consider where our affection is truly set. Is it on that which passes away? And, and it's interesting because the Lord's not using the, the word money here. He's using treasure. It, it's much more about our behavior than the stuff. Because you can have a lot of money and still be honoring, glorifying God. Job was the richest man in his day. And after he lost everything, the Lord rewarded him and he had double what he had had before because his heart was on serving the Lord and you can be without and be a greedy person and so it's a heart issue that the Lord is dealing with here 
the, the treasure, because what you treasure will determine your perspective on the real values of life. It's where our heart goes. So where are you investing your life is the question. That's what this is asking is, what are we truly focused on that this is what we're seeking to gain? That everything we have is going to either be a tool or it's going to become an idol if we're not careful. And recognizing that it belongs to God, then we can say, Lord, whatever you bless me with, and this is what what Paul said, I've learned to to be abased and I've learned to abound. I've learned to go without, I've learned to have a a lot, and in all of this I can be comfortable and satisfied because my, my eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. And that's what we see then in this passage. It moves from our heart to our eye. Because the second issue is the issue of our affection, and it's that of competing visions. We have competing treasures. Now we have competing visions. And it's speaking of the vision of the soul. The lamp of the body is the idea here. It says if your eye is, is good... And the, the idea here that is if there's a clarity in our, in our spiritual sight, then the whole body's going to be full of light. We're going to see properly. As we, as we read in, in Psalm 119, that, that God's Word gives us light. You know, many of us need glasses because without them, things are fuzzy. That we can't quite see. I remember when my eyes started going, I was actually, I was doing okay, but I needed reading glasses, and I was going to teach in a college in Zambia, and I lost my reading glasses on the plane. And, and I just picked them up at a drugstore, grocery store, and I thought, I'll just get some when I get there. Well, yeah, nice idea. I mean, it was a built-up area. There were lots of stores. I could not find reading glasses. Thankfully, at that time, my arm was still long enough that I, that I could hold my notes out and I could still read them. That wouldn't happen now. But I, again, I was, I was reminded of what a blessed nation we are in. It wasn't that I didn't have money to buy them. I couldn't get them. They weren't available. But it was a, a struggle because my eyes weren't seen as clearly. If we don't see the world clearly, if we're not seen spiritually, if our eyes, be, everything's going to start to get blurred and we're going to have the wrong values. You know, sometimes there's the, the cataract starts to build up and it has to be removed to give that clear sight. That's what's being brought out here. Jesus is using that, that picture of the eye into the soul and saying that if we don't see clearly, there's going to be a problem. That loving money, being, being consumed with the desire for stuff will cloud your vision. In fact, it says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's not having money that's a problem. It's the love of money. And it doesn't say the lack of money is the problem. It's the love of money. Because a person who loves money is characterized by a number of things. One is they tend to trust the money rather than God. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty and not to trust the uncertain riches, but trust the living God. Are riches uncertain? Have you looked at what the stock market's doing? How have your investments done this year? No, this hasn't been a great year for that. There's that uncertainty, and if we're, if we're laying up treasure on earth, that we, we need to be wise stewards, that we seek to invest wisely. But 
Is our satisfaction truly in the Lord or in a diversified portfolio? Are we trusting God or gold? It, it tends to be, a person who loves money tends to have a false sense of security. Jesus used the parable of the soils and, and he told how the riches of this world come up and they tro- choke off the word of God. You know, sometimes people can assume if they're financially comfortable, then God's favor must be upon them. And sometimes that is true. But it may not be the case. There are people in this world that are doing very well, but this is the best they're ever going to see because they're heading for a Christless eternity. For a person who loves money, there never seems to be quite enough. Paul spoke of being content. I've mentioned this in Philippians 4.11, that he, he knew what it was to be in need, and he was still content. Proverbs 30, verse 15, speaks of greed as having twin daughters, give and give. They always want more. And, and that's what the proverb is saying. The fourth one is, it, a person who loves money tends to build his life on an unstable foundation. Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not overwork to be rich. You will set your eyes on that which is not. For riches certainly will make themselves wings and fly away. If you were, if you were greatly invested in cryptocurrency, you're in trouble. <laughs> it disappears. In fact, in in Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells of a rich man who had great crops. His fields were doing very well. And he finally said, you know what? I'm just going to tear down all my barns. I'm going to build new barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And then I'm just going to store everything up. And so I can, for years, just kick back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord called him a fool and said, tonight your soul is required of you. None of us is guaranteed of tomorrow. Now, we need to plan. We need to be good stewards. As I've already said, the Bible does not condone irresponsibility. And and we want to do well, and we want to see the Lord honored and glorified. But we have to understand the unstable foundation. A fifth one is a person who loves money tends to become proud. 1 Timothy 6, 17, I've already read, but it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Not to view that as a status symbol. Proverbs 28, 11, the rich man is wise in his own eyes. You know, we, somebody has said we live in a culture where people buy things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. Why would they do that? Pride. No, and and it, people will sin to get money. In that way, they behave like an unbeliever. You know, pad expense accounts, lie on their taxes, and and say, I'm not going to be honest. And it's interesting how often many of the well-known stories of the gospel talk about how somebody deals with material possessions in light of their salvation. Now, please, let me be very clear. We cannot buy our way into heaven. Your giving does not, you know, slip God some money and he kind of looks favorably on you. Like you did done something un, under the table. No, the only payment that is accepted by God is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And, and understanding that, that God gave his only begotten son, the greatest gift, because our greatest need was we were sinners. And the greatest gift is that he gave his only begotten son with the greatest result that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life but when salvation comes it changes our focus 
We realize there's that, that competing treasures, that competing vision. We understand that, that if we're not willing to give, that there's, there ought to be a question in our hearts. In fact, it says in 1 John three fourteen, if we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren, he that does not love his brother abides in death. And then it says in verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart to him, how does the love of God dwell in him? It says when we truly know the Lord, there's a willingness to be good stewards. So the question is, are you characterized by the love of money? Because what you love will determine your pursuits and your priorities. That what we truly love is going to be seen in these areas. There's, there's this competition in treasure. There's a competition in vision. And then the third competition is life commitment. And we see that because we have competing masters. No one, and this really, verse 24 is the key verse of this section. It builds to this in this paragraph. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon. The, the word mammon there is the Aramaic word for riches. That's the word that Jesus is using there. And it's interesting because when, when people have heard the preaching of John the Baptist and, and he called them to repentance and they start saying, okay, what does that mean in my life, in my situation? What do I do? And in, in Luke chapter 3, he gives several answers. He answers them and he says, well, if you have two coats, give to the person who doesn't have any. And if you have extra food, give to the person who has no food. And then the tax collectors say, well, what should we do? And he says, don't take any more than is appointed. Collect only what you're supposed to. And if you've been with us for our study of the apostles, you know how the tax collectors and Matthew was one of them, how they tended to just add on their, their amount. The only person who didn't know what they were paying in taxes was the person who actually had to pay. Because everybody in the line added their cut. And so John the Baptist told him, don't take any more than is appointed. And then the Roman soldier said, well, what about us? And John told them, don't extort money. Don't make false accusations and be content with your wages. Even in that day, there was a discontent with, sal discontent with salary. But we have pictures, we have the stories, we have a young man that comes to Jesus and, and he said, what do I have to do for eternal life? I mean, wouldn't you love to get that question in a witnessing opportunity? Down on the campus of ASU, somebody comes up, what do I have to do for eternal life? Somebody in your workplace comes up, what do I... And, and boy, we, we, we go to the Romans Road, we got, go to John 3, 16, what does Jesus do? Well, he starts by saying, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. He's laying out that this man didn't truly see him as God. But then he says to him, sell everything you have, give it away, and follow me. <laughs> Wait a minute. You mean you can buy salvation? No, you can't. And that's the only person Jesus ever said that to. Why did he say that? Because he was putting his finger on his true master. And it says the man went away sorrowful. And, and the Bible tells us that Jesus looked on this man and he loved him. He wasn't trying to drive him away. But the man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great wealth. Now, we know him as the rich young ruler. And I think in understanding it that way, sometimes it takes the weight out of what actually happens because in the text, we don't find out he was rich until the very end of the story. We put it at the beginning. But how easy would it be to raise a rich young ruler today? 
He was respectful. He was asking religious questions. He had a management position. And he was well off. And yet he didn't know Jesus. There's another man that we read about in Scripture. He was a tax collector and he wanted to see Jesus. And he was too short. So he climbed up in a tree and Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to your house. And he goes to his house and Zacchaeus says this, Look, Lord, I will give half of my goods to the poor and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore fourfold. And then it says this in Luke 19, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Did he buy a salvation? No. But his change toward who his master was indicated his salvation. Because neither, none of us can serve two masters. So the question is, what are you trusting? Are we striving to be faithful? Because the way you use wealth really reveals the condition of your heart. How do we view giving? As I said, everything can be either a tool or an idol. The, the sermon goes to this point, and then it goes on from here, and we're not going to look at it this morning, but if you read the rest of this passage in, Luke cha- or in Matthew chapter 6, you find out when you have the right focus, when you have the right treasure, when you have the right master, then you have no reason to worry. And so the rest of it speaks of how do we overcome worry? Do not worry. I say to you, do not worry for your life. What you will eat, drink, what, what you will wear. The body is more than stuff, the material. Because moths can eat that. It can be eaten away by other things, or it can be stolen. So when we lay up treasure in heaven, and that's how this passage concludes, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And as it goes to that, it says, when, when God is our Heavenly Father and we realize He owns everything, then we have the right priorities. And when we give priority to His purpose and being found as good stewards, then righteousness becomes a way of life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the way of life when we have the right priorities. Because the end of life is not the accumulation of wealth. The end of life is the approval of God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Because when we're content, we're willing to share our French fries. Because we know God provides. And He does generously. And that really is the testimony of Tri-City Baptist Church. That is the testimony. We, we see this week in and week out in the faithfulness of giving. But folks, is that your testimony? Will we hear, well done? faithful servant because we have invested with an eternal investment laying up treasure in heaven we have a clear eye we're seeing things properly with a spiritual focus in this world that when God blesses we thank him for that but we strive to be faithful because we're not being mastered by riches but we're serving the true master the giver of all good gifts do you have that gift of salvation this morning and if so Are you serving faithfully? Let's pray together. 